Austin Institute. It's been part of our life since uh, you know 2015, and uh, you know have seen august members of our community and beyond in this uh, you know awesome place. So to be able to give this talk to you guys is a huge honor. Um, so um, let's just go ahead and dive in. So a few years ago, um, I gave full-time farming a go. Um, it was small scale, under an acre, and a neighbor even allowed me to borrow his tractor. Hard work I was prepared for, but the weeds were horrendous. No sooner had I finished weeding a bed of carrots than new weeds had grown up inside of that bed. Now you can fight against weeds with any number of lethal weapons. Drugs are the most popular. As any organic grower, though, knows, um, I'm committed to just say no to drugs in the pesticide realm. Um, so machines are the organic growers go to choice. Um, and that's what I used. Till, till, till. A strategy of divide, conquer, and grinding your enemy down. I tried to power my soil into acquiescence. But you'll never defeat weeds so long as you ignore what they're telling you. They'll just keep coming. You can view weeds as the central problem or as evidence of something deeper. Literally. Hey, Robbie. Good to see you. You can work with the soil that is springing up your weeds. Sorry. Or you can ignore it and marshal all your powers to bring the weeds it sends your way, wave after wave after wave, into submission. I chose weed management, mostly because I thought I could. We told our friends that we needed to relocate to a closer field, but the reality was I was a defeated man after we stopped that farm in eight months. My wife now lives in fear that I will choose to go back to full-time farming um, because what she saw was how swamped I was, how stressed I was, how little satisfied I was with that kind of farming, that kind of work. The pandemic revealed our dis disordered relationship with the weeds of time. I was talking to my Uber driver the other day on a, on a ride to the airport. I said, how did you become an Uber driver? He'd been a finance manager for a local Toyota car dealership, worked his way up from the maintenance department, all the way up to kind of getting a commission on every one of the sales. He told me about the long hours he put in, late evenings, weekends. His marriage broke down the year before the pandemic, and he was losing touch with his kids. He provided for his family, but the weeds were driving him out of his vocation as a father. When the pandemic hit, he said, something just broke inside. He couldn't do it anymore. In his book, Finding Flow, Mihai Chicksett Mihai says, time is the ultimate resource we have. Over the years, the content of experience will determine the quality of our life. Therefore, one of the most essential decisions any of us can make is how our time is allocated or invested. Now, has anybody here heard of this guy, Chicksett Mihai? Kind of... He found it, the, the idea of flow. Anybody heard that idea before? Um, he actually just died last week. Um, so don't go trying to find him now. Um, but he was one of the thought kind of guru types of the last generation. Um, his concept of flow is awesome. Um, you basically devote each moment to a task 
And then you lose yourself, you lose your ego in the task, in the sense of it. Um, if the task isn't hard enough, then you ratchet up the task. You make it a little bit more difficult. Um, if it's too easy, um, sorry, if it's too easy, you ratchet it up. If it's too hard, you need to develop more skills to face that task. So every activity, he says, should feel like a child lost in play in the playground. Every moment of our day, whether we're a, a, a parent or a, you know, at work and a, a boring job or in a great job, he, he said, you know, we can choose flow. We can choose this thing um, to, to kind of take back our time. But if you notice from the quote, uh, at Mihai smuggles in a common metaphor for time. One of our most essential decisions, he says, any of us can make is how time is allocated or invested. You notice that? He uses this idea of time as a commodity. So Mihai comes across as one of the enlightened ones. You know, you, you, you see these folks all over the place, but his metaphors betray him. You are the problem, essentially, the, the, the thinking goes. If you just knew the secret sauce of life, you wouldn't be fighting weeds in your daily task. You wouldn't be fighting weeds each moment. You have to work just a little bit harder, and then it'll get a lot easier, I promise. Millions of articles are written every year about how to help us manage this question. How can we make our life, that is how we use our time, more meaningful? The best thinkers, the most savvy magazines, are still just looking at your time like it's a dollar bill that you're spending poorly. Don't make excuses. Just buckle up and discipline yourself. Anybody can do it, right? Like, no excuses to stay home with the kids and not be focused, to not be seizing your time. Well, we know, all, we, we know that if we don't use our time well, we're going to suffer for it. Weeds will drive a farmer out of business. Weeds will drive a house into disorder. Weeds will, you know, suffer in a job. My point here is that there's a better way to do this. And of course, he teaches that on the church calendar, Fuller Seminary professor David Taylor says, there's no such thing as mere time. All time is culturally construed. There's no such thing as neutral time. All time tells a story. Every idea of time tells a story I want to say time is the soil that the weeds of our moments you know, are fighting with us in. The story of our life is what our choices are planted in. This is the soil that our weeds are springing up from. The primary story of our time is that of possession. This is what we own. It's ours. We need to take it. We own it. And if we're wise, we'll put it to work in the world in a way that will make it become money which we're told is way more useful, way more exchangeable than a thing like time, just sitting on a shelf. I'm not immune to this. I've been red-pilled lately by a real estate podcast called Deeper Pockets, uh, Bigger Pockets. <laughs> um, just about every episode is about someone who basically was broke. They were living paycheck to paycheck. They scraped all their pennies together to buy their first rental property and they like barely made it. And then they got two and then they got three and it's a narrative. They always finish by saying they just have a few more years and they're going to be sipping Mai Tais on the beach. Like always, like every episode, it's kind of like sipping, like they know the, 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 the phrase, sipping Mai Tais. The host is from Hawaii. Um, so it actually, he's a real estate investor in Hawaii. Um, so rather than their time sitting on a shelf, quote unquote, unproductive, they will be. 
We don't trust ourselves to steward our time. We give it away so that it would be made valuable and then handed back to us. When we get it back, if we ever do, we have no idea how to recognize its value. Another story of time. Several years ago, I discovered Abraham Heschel. Has anybody heard of Heschel? So, amazing book on, on the Sabbath. Um, Heschel was a famous rabbi, Jewish theologian. In his book, he, he called the Sabbath a temple in time. Anybody heard that? I mean, just reading that, man, years ago just stuck with me. Um, what, what struck me... What, what, what struck me about uh, thinking about time as a temple is, is that it's a, it's a concept that we're living in as opposed to something that we own or use. People build temples to acknowledge something. What? As the saying goes, what we build eventually builds us. Each moment of our time is dedicated to a temple. Have you ever heard the saying, if you're not paying for it, then you're not the customer, you're the product? I want to tweak that. If you're not building a temple of time, you're not the God being worshipped, you're the sacrifice. And how's, that for work, and how's that working out for us? Pandemics are happening all around us. Um, Harvard just came out with a study, 36%, seriously lonely. Um, Gen Z and millennials are the most lonely. 61% say they're frequently or uh, all the time lonely. Um, it's not surprising that drug overdoses are up. Um, 300% over the last two decades. Um, in the last year, depending on what state you live in, 30 to over 50% overdose deaths increases in one year. In one year, overdose deaths are up 30 to over 50%. The drug of choice these days is fentanyl, which is like all the major new drugs of our time. It's a downer. Um, we take it to flush out reality. It leads us into our bedrooms into our screens, hidden behind our masks, to be alone and die quietly. They call, these, um, they, they call these deaths of despair. And they're surging. Life expectancy, you may have heard, it's plummeting. The last time this degree of drop was recorded was when World War I collided with the Spanish flu. Last time that life expectancy decreased at this, this rate, last five years life expectancy has, has decreased. What's wrong with us? We're fighting weeds every day. A recent survey of 10,000 young people in 10 countries showed that 39% of Gen Zs are hesitant to have babies because of what they called the climate apocalypse. But apocalypse has two meanings. Most smuggle in the idea of the end of the world, but apocalypse also means an unveiling, a revelation of what was once concealed. The apocalypse of our uncertain time is secret no more. The pandemic, if it did nothing else, unveiled a people frayed from the effort to keep the fight going. But the history of the world is dotted with apocalypse. This is not the first. In the 5th century, the largest empire in the world was toppling. There emerged a need for stability. Christian monasteries attempted to create an environment of order to combat the disorder of the world outside. They spread as centers of learning and meaning, especially along the edges of the world, furthest from the centers of the old power. To maintain regularity and order, they employed the ringing of a bell every three hours to call the monks to prayer. The, monks, the monk was to put down whatever they were doing immediately 
to come to prayer whenever they heard that bell. Nothing was more important. The prayer bell defined what was important. Sacred time enclosed and communicated a story for secular time that happened in the in-between time. As the villages surrounding them increased in number, so did the influence of the bell ringing on human affairs. At a time when it took a few months to build a house, it would take a century to build uh, a monastery. The bells of the monastery de defined urban existence, baptizing every hour um, of significance for those that lived within earshot of that bell. And while the bell's toll came to order a world out of control, they developed an entirely new imagination of time. It followed a psychological, a biological tempo. Sacred time and the calendars that grew out of it corresponded to nature's time, but also weaved into a tapestry of a well-lived life. It was material and concrete, and it brought hope. The start of the church calendar is just a few weeks away, but look outside and you'll get a sense of it. The year begins in the dark, and it's getting darker. The year, um, as the year ends, the, the leaves begin to drop from the trees. You might say that the, uh, the, the leaves have cried out. The colors, uh, you know, raged and then they've fallen. Um, you get the sense of ghosts or chaos reigns. And then Advent, the beginning of the church calendar. It's like the beginning of creation. Chaos becomes order. God reigns in darkness. Who knows when Christ was really born, but into the temple of time that the church constructed, he was born six days after the winter solstice, the darkest day of the year. He brought joy and an awesome feast in the midst of that darkness. Hours, days, weeks, months had a story that made them valuable from anything you could add to them. Albert Borgman, coined the term focal practices. Anybody ever heard of him? To describe things like reciting poetry, playing an instrument, bring, uh, bringing the family together around a home-cooked meal, taking a walk in the woods, writing a letter, tending a garden. Focal practices focus attention in a world that diffuses it. Focal practices, he said, unite the individual with the larger community, the body to the work of the mind, the means to the ends that define their value. The tools needed to do these practices he called focal things. They're apocalyptic practices that reveal the focus they enable. The tools we make, we by the tools we make, we herald the meaning of time. The monastery's bell rang seven times a day to call attention to what was real. The pickaxe wasn't an instrument of drudgery, but a way to attend to the planting of a feast. The canvas and paint of a painter didn't reveal the man. They called forth the attention to a window of eternity. Borgman compared these to what he called focal devices that call attention to themselves. Focal devices provide what appear to be shortcuts to the good things of life, while simultaneously concealing their operations from us. Basically, they're our ordinary life today. Um, so we can't do without them. Focal devices, in Borgman's telling, aren't wrong unless we allow them to dominate our attention. But that's exactly what they do. 
the tools they make unnecessary are not just made worthless, but invisible. The story that made them meaningful, as well as the wisdom that governed their effective use, are both lost. Simple tools are replaced by a thousand advertising slogans, each of which promises a different story that our purchase gains us access to, all competing with themselves. In 2004, I first read Borgman's Crossing the Postmodern Divide and discovered this idea of a focal practice. At the time, I'd never put a seed in the ground. But he, was, but he convinced me that something in my life was missing. The world to which I would later be enabled to call attention at the time, I couldn't even imagine. I'm infinitely grateful for discovering this concept. In his book, The Technological Society, Jacques Ellul, notes that the clock became a precedent-setting device that forged many others in its image. It formed a device-centered as opposed to tool-centered world. In it, he says, toward the end of the 14th century, time was divided into hours, minutes, and seconds. Little by little, this mechanical kind of time, with its knife-edge divisions, penetrated, along with machinery, into human life. The first private clocks appeared in the 16th century. Thenceforward, time was an abstract measure, separated from traditional rhythms of life and nature. It became mere quantity. But since life is inseparable from time, life too was forced to submit to the new guiding principle. From then on, life itself was measured by the machine. Its organic functions obeyed the mechanical. Eating, working, sleeping were at the beck and call of machinery. I would add it was only a matter of time before those who would control the machinery would begin to define what time was for us. One of my favorite essayists takes up Alul's description of this evolution of time, and he calls it the machine. I like to think of it like the tractor at the farm that I uh, when, when I was farming full-time. The machine, this is Paul Kingsnorth, says, is designed to make us homeless. It rips up our roots in nature, in real cultures, connected to time and place. In their stead, we're offered an anti-culture, an endless consumer present, planned, monitored, controlled, smart, borderless, profitable, soul-dead, and increasingly detached from messy reality, directed by who knows, mediated through monitored screens. To come back to the garden where I started, how can I attend the soil rather than fight the weeds? The soil is part of a larger structure. It's shaped not just by me, but by those who have used or abused it in the past. It plays a role in a field, in a watershed, in an ecosystem. It's caught up into an organic rhythm of a thousand clocks, all operating in harmony. What the soil wants is to flourish as a member of all the communities to which it is a contributing member. This is also what our lives want. To steal from Windowberry, time wants membership. It will fight against you if you deny it. And if you give it away for money, you'd better make sure that they have lost the plot as we have. It's what the pandemic has revealed. We're crying for something to define our time, something that won't mistake us for weeds standing in its way. Yeah. 
Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating, and please donate so we can do even more.